This is the Friends of Israel Today. I'm Steve Conover. And I'm Chris Katolka. And as we begin, I'll remind you to visit foiradio.org. That's foiradio.org to get your free one-year subscription to our beautifully designed and informative magazine, Israel, My Glory. In our upcoming issue entitled, Thy Kingdom Come, we look at what the prophet Isaiah had to say about the future kingdom of God. If you love Israel and the Jewish people and you value great Bible teaching, visit foiradio.org or you can call our listener line and ask for your free trial subscription to Israel My Glory magazine. Call 888-343-6940. Today we're gonna focus our program on the 60th anniversary of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that's why I wanted to make sure we had Dr. Randall Price on, an expert in archeology span and the Dead Sea Scrolls to talk about how the Dead Sea Scrolls have impacted our Bible, the modern translations and theology in general. And it just so happens to be that Dr. Randall Price returned from Israel after a big find that has to do with the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we're gonna talk to him about that too. And then finally, apples of gold. Thank you, Chris. To listen to past programs or to read our notes for today's show, visit foiradio.org. Now we join Chris with his guest, Dr. Randall Price. Folks, today we're going to focus on uh, something that's near and dear to my heart, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, It's something that I studied in my time at Dallas Theological Seminary. It's something I had a passion about. And uh, it, it was it was fascinating to look at these ancient manuscripts and how these ancient manuscripts impact the way that we see the Bible and understand the times of the Bible today. And so that's why I wanted to have Randall Price, who is author, university professor, world-renowned archaeologist on the program. He's also the founder and president of World of the Bible Ministries, which you can find at worldofthebible.com. Randall, great to have you on the program, my friend. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it. Randall, the Dead Sea Scrolls are something that's near and dear to me, uh, but I also know that there's something near and dear to you as an archaeologist. Can you, can you tell us why the Dead Sea Scrolls are so important? Well, they're important, of course, because they represent the oldest copies of the Bible we have, and there was a great need to be able to understand the transmission history of the biblical text, because the Old Testament from which our uh, Bibles are translated was about 1,000 A.D., but the Dead Sea Scrolls take us back another 1,200 years to see something we never expected to see, and that is the way the biblical text looked uh, about 200 years before the birth of Jesus. You know, and one of the things that I've always kind of understood over the times is this, is that because our earliest manuscripts prior to the Dead Sea Scrolls for the Old Testament uh, came from 1000 AD, many scholars had uh, issues with the Old Testament thinking that Christians had an influence on it. They, they were the ones who influenced Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage, and things of that nature. Uh, but then when the Dead Sea Scrolls came along, they radically changed the way that we look at a pre-Christian text. Is that true? Yes, and also how we look at the Bible as a messianic uh, document, in other words, with messianic prophecy. Uh, you brought up Isaiah 53, and there there is a variant in the Dead Sea Scroll manuscript uh, that talks about after his death he will see light, the word or, which is also in the Septuagint, the word phos, but it's not in the Masoretic text, and it just strengthens the concept of resurrection. Take us back, Randall, uh, 60 years ago, uh, how did the Dead Sea Scrolls come about? How were they found? Well, it was really quite a, uh, a, uh, a surprise because no one believed manuscripts at all could exist. Uh, there was some evidence from ancient uh, writings 
like Origins Hexaplot and, and the, the fifth column of this, it, it mentioned a scroll. This Hebrew text came from, from a cave near Jericho, but that was already back in the third century A.D., and no one had heard of anything since then. But in the late 40s, uh, Bedouins, I think probably because of the pressure of the impending war and uh, things were, were desperate to make some money, they combed some of the caves in the area uh, where they lived there and the uh, area of the, uh, the Jordan Valley, these cliffs on the sides of the Dead Sea. And they started finding jars, and in the jars they found scrolls. I personally interviewed three of the Bedouin who were involved with that discovery. And they have, they have told me, you know, it's not the story of throwing a rock in a, and uh, looking for a lost goat, as you hear it popularly told, but they were actually treasure hunting. They found these things. Uh, they didn't know exactly what to do with them, but they sold them to a antiquities dealer who happened to be a cobbler who got a cheaper price because he said, if these things, this leather, which is what the scrolls are written on, uh, is not valuable for antiquity. I can at least use it to line shoes in my cobbler shop. So, so the Bedouin went off and I began to look for more things because they'd gotten a, in the 1940s a pretty good price for this. But uh, they were sold to an archbishop of St. Mark's uh, Syrian Church uh, in uh, Jerusalem. And he was trying to figure out what they were. He knew it was Hebrew, but didn't know much about it. He took it over to what was then the American School of Ordinary Research, now called the Albright Institute. And there a man named John Trevor was uh, photographing uh, fauna and flora, as they say. And uh, the director was away. This, this, this archbishop comes in with these scrolls. And John Trevor, in one evening, photographs the entire uh, manuscript of Isaiah, the Manual of Discipline, all these ones that were found in Cave 1. And uh, then they begin to be studied. And William F. Albright, the dean of American archaeology, saw a picture of this. And he said, this is the greatest discovery in the 20th century. And that's proven to be the case. Wow. So, I mean, this it's it's a long trek to get from the Bedouin in the Qumran community who uncovers these these scrolls to the place where they are right now at the at the shrine of the book in Israel. There has been a long journey for these for these scrolls. Yeah, and they they went through the war, the the war of independence in which uh, the archbishop got out of town because things were getting too hot. He took his four scrolls that he had uh, to Hackensack, New Jersey, and then began to display them in different uh, universities and uh, uh, civic centers, wherever people were interested in looking at them. There was still a dispute about the date or age of them. But uh, the other three scrolls, scrolls remained in Jerusalem, because there were seven scrolls originally found. And that remained with a Hebrew professor uh, at the Hebrew University uh, named Eliezer Sakanik, who was the father of Yigil Yadin, a statesman later, who ironically was the one who recovered those four scrolls that ended up in the United States because they were put in an ad in the Wall Street Journal for sale. And a reporter saw it, called Yadin in Israel. He arranged through a, a middleman to purchase these because they wouldn't have sold them directly to someone related to the state of Israel. And that joined the three scrolls already there with the four scrolls that uh, were owned by the archbishop and now sold to Israel. That's why the Shrine of the Book was created, to house those original documents. That's amazing. Uh, look at, uh, we're speaking with uh, Randall Price, who is the founder and president of the World of the Bible, world-renowned archaeologist and, and author of, of, of dozens and dozens of books. Uh, Randall, tell me, and, and, and for my audience too, 
how have the Dead Sea Scrolls over the past 60 years impacted uh, our modern translations of the Bible? The Bible's gone through a lot in the past 60 years. What are the dead, how have the Dead Sea Scrolls impacted uh, the tra- modern translations? Yes, since the 1950s, there has been no translation of the Bible in English or any other languages, not taking into account the evidence from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, they have to, because this is the earliest copies of the biblical text we have, and you have to consider them. Uh, there's been so much study done. All of those texts have been published nowadays, so they're actually available to anyone. Even the images of the scrolls are available online, so someone who wants to see this for themselves can. But uh, our translations have have been affected you know, by this in significant ways, I think particularly in some of the Messianic interpretations uh, and also um, in just some of the uh, the terminology that was used. So there were archaic terms we didn't know exactly how to translate them, and in the context of the scrolls, there are certain words repeated. It also affected, may I say, things related to the New Testament, because not only were biblical manuscripts found, but but many, many, many scores of documents uh, this, of a sectarian nature. And it was written by these guys themselves, either as commentaries on the Bible, or their view of the times, or uh, interpretation of their sect and, and the cultures and practices or interaction with people like the Pharisees and Sadducees, who, by the way, left no writings of their own. So the only thing we have is on the pages of the New Testament and in Qumran, and a few things through Flavius Josephus. But what's interesting is you find all of a sudden that a book like the Gospel of John, which was considered uh, before the Dead Sea Scrolls to be the most Greek of all the Gospels, all of a sudden is now universally acknowledged as the most Jewish of all the Gospels, because the terminology found in these sectarian scrolls uh, matches what's in, in the Gospel of John and nowhere else. So we know that the time in which it was written and, and the people who wrote it uh, had to have had this, this close Jewish affiliation. It, it would not have been in the Greek culture at all. So... Uh, it's helped a great deal with the background of the New Testament, uh, understanding of certain historical and cultural things as well. Now listen, my friends, we are speaking with Dr. Randall Price. When we come back, you're going to want to stick around because Randall has some great insight for us on a recent dig that he was a part of. The, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls aren't dead, my friends. They're alive and well, and there's a lot going on with them. So stick around because Dr. Price has a lot more for us here. If you're enjoying Dr. Randall Price's interview and want to learn more about how archaeology gives proof to the Bible's historical past, you'll want to order his book, The Stones Cry Out. You can find it at foiradio.org. Journey with Dr. Price as he explores the Promised Land. Your faith will be strengthened by the exciting archaeological finds along with testimonies and interviews from leading archaeologists. In an age of biblical skepticism, Dr. Price's book, The Stones Cry Out, provides the tools you need to defend God's Word, all while leaving you encouraged in your faith. Order your copy at foiradio.org or call 888-343-6940. Welcome back, everybody. We're speaking with Dr. Randall Price, who is a professor, author, and a world-renowned archaeologist. And we are speaking about the and talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're 60 years old this year in 2017. 
the Dead Sea Scrolls have had a massive impact on theology, a massive impact on our translations of the Bible, the way that we understand both Judaism and Christianity, as we've been talking about earlier in the previous segment. But uh, Dr. Price, you have been very active in in a recent finding that took place. You just got back from Israel. It's practically your second home. What happened while you were over there? Yeah, let me say first, just for your audience, I I spent 10 years as director of the Qumran Plateau excavations, which is right at the site of Qumran. And because of that, wanted to branch out and see if there were area caves that might help us understand a little bit of what we were discovering at the site. And in 2006, uh, found a cave within visual sight of the the plateau of Qumran and um, found out that that had been first... Uh, survey back in 1993 when they were afraid that this area was going to be turned over to the Palestinians and the archaeologists combed the area looking for any clues of possible caves. And so, but it had never been excavated. And, and so this was something I felt we had to do. And so uh, this last uh, month in January, we uh, took a team and worked with uh, Israeli archaeologist uh, Oren Goodfeld, who had worked with me for those 10 years at Qumran, and uh, Achiad Ovada, who was another archaeologist at Hebrew University. And I had a number of volunteers uh, that came along with some faculty from Liberty University, where I teach. And we began to systematically excavate this cave. Now, let me just say, no archaeologist in the past ever have excavated a cave, found jars with intact scrolls in them. They were always looted. They got there on the heels of the Bedouin who had come and robbed these caves. They found remains of things. They got through the black market, things that they were told came from these caves, or they found broken scroll jars. And and so in our excavations, we were working, in, and we were hoping we had a, a scroll cave, because no scroll cave has been discovered since 1956, which was the last one discovered was Cave 11. And we were working pretty hard at this, and, uh, and about two weeks in, we got enough uncovered that there was a 50-foot tunnel in the back of this cave, uh, and we started finding niches along the sides of that tunnel, and in it were remains of store jars. And these were the wide mouth jars that held uh, scrolls. We found lids that were connected with those. Um, we, you know, at the very top of the cave, unfortunately, found some very rusty robber's tools, some picks and things that they had hidden away, hopefully going to come back someday and do more work, but uh, never did. And, of course, this was under the Jordanian administration, and things were, were tight, but not as tight as they are under the Israelis. But... Um, then we began to excavate the uh, lower part of the cave, and in niches there we found more scroll jars. We found some rolled-up pieces of leather. We found gauze that had covered the Dead Sea Scrolls. We found strings that had tied them together. We found all the evidence you need to say the scrolls were here, but of course they weren't here because they were looted in the past. Now, we don't know where they went, and this is the problem with Dead Sea Scrolls in general. The knowledge of connecting the scrolls to a cave is largely based on the testimony of the Bedouin and of a man named Kondo, uh, to whom the scrolls were sold. And I went uh, a couple of weeks ago and talked to Kondo's uh, son, who um, has some knowledge, but he doesn't have a lot of knowledge because the Bedouin were afraid to tell anybody where they got things for fear that someone would go and find new things and they would be you know, cheated out of the profit. 
And so things are not as reliable as we often believe. So what we think we have now is cave number 12. Uh, no, no, I mean, it's uh, history for this uh, time and era because no one had found anything like this or even knew something like this existed. There was the hope that it did. And we're part of the new Operation Scroll, uh, initiated by the Hebrew University Institute of Archaeology, uh, along with the Civil Administration for Judea and Samaria. And what we're doing, uh, this was the launch of it, looking for new Dead Sea Scroll caves to, to beat these looters and get to some of these documents before they do. And uh, the hope now, there's some 300 caves that, that are listed that are potentials, and we're just getting started. So this is the, the beginning of things, and it's a very successful beginning. 300 caves, that's amazing. Yeah, no, it's quite amazing. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, if you think about it, that's more work than anyone can do in a lifetime. Uh, excavation is only about a third of the process. The rest of it is the research, the analysis, the work in the lab, the writing, the publication. And so, you know, people often think, well, you can just, why don't you do about 10 of these at one time? Well, because of the, uh, of the difficulties, there's not even enough experts and people to handle the finds from such caves. So it has to be done very systematically. Randall, can I turn us to a more uh, spiritual issue? I want to focus in on this this one concept here. Why, you know, as we're looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls being 60 years old and the fact that you're still uncovering caves and that there could be potentially 300 more to go, which is absolutely amazing to think about what's still buried beneath the sands there. What, what, why do you think God preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls till now, 2,000 years later, to be uncovered for our times? Well, there's probably a number of answers. Uh, a more providential one is this, that when the Dead Sea Scrolls were first discovered, it was right on the eve of the War of Independence. And I remember talking with um, uh, people about Eliezer Sakinik, who had those three scrolls, and he was opening them up in his study, looking at the book of Isaiah, reading about the restoration of Israel that would take place in the future. And he heard on the radio in the next room um, Ben-Gurion declared the state of Israel. And, you know, it was, it was so providential that these scrolls should come to light at the very time that Israel becomes a nation, as though saying, here's your ancient heritage, here's the future. And then uh, something like the Temple Scroll uh, came to, to the hands of Israelis on the very day that the Temple Mount was taken in June 7, 1967. So again, another very providential thing. You take the Temple Mount, you get a scroll that is a blueprint for building a new temple, at least uh, as it existed. So I think uh, you know God certainly wants to keep his people aware that uh, the Word of God has been preserved, uh, just as the Jewish people have been preserved. And uh, for us, I think, too, uh, we live in a more skeptical age, we have in a very critical age, and even, even among evangelical scholars, there's a lot of criticism of the text of the Bible, and people feel less uh, trusting about it than, than ever before. And the Dead Sea Scrolls come and reaffirm the fact that we can trust the text, that it was passed on reliably, and uh, you know that it was and it was revered and cared for by these ancients. Uh, they they could not just throw the text out. They had to preserve it. It's one of the reasons they put them in jars and hid it away, because it was indeed the Word of God. So these are witnesses to us, you know, here in the 21st century. 
It's amazing. My friends, we've been speaking with Dr. Randall Price, and I want to first say this. Dr. Price is a regular contributor to Israel My Glory magazine. He contributes to a section called Unearthing Truth with Randall Price. So if you're interested in archaeology and how it impacts the Bible and our understanding of the scriptures, you'll want to be sure to tune into that with Israel My Glory by signing up for a free issue if you don't already get it. And also, I want to make you aware of the fact that Dr. Price has a website called World of the Bible, and this is is a great place for you to go to see what Dr. Price is doing, where he's going, and the ministry that he has is the president and founder of World of the Bible. You can see that at worldofthebible.com. Dr. Price, thank you so much for being on the program, my friend. You're most welcome. Thank you, sir. Now, Apples of Gold, a dramatic reading from the life and ministry of Holocaust survivor Svi Kalisher. Israel is constantly being attacked by bloodthirsty people who seek to annihilate us. But no power on earth can stand against God. Recently, I was stationed in Samaria in the army. And one day we went to a restaurant in Shechem. And inside were several Arabs. When they began to say things against us, I responded in Arabic. As long as you continue to follow after darkness, you will remain blind. Having Russia on your side will not help you. You are not strong enough to fight the battle. Soon more Arabs entered the restaurant, all likewise confident in themselves. I said, you can see how many people you have and how many people we have. This fact alone should show you how weak you are. One replied, that does not make sense. We have so many people and you have so few. I answered, we are small in quantity, but we are great in quality. Your past experiences and wars against us should prove that to you. What is your secret? One asked. I replied, as a soldier, I cannot disclose military secrets. But as a believer, I can tell you the secret is to fear God and follow only Him. Then you will no longer hate Israel. We pray to Allah and to His prophet Muhammad. I said, there is only one God. We do not pray to our prophets. They are no longer alive and they cannot help us. We must open our hearts to God. He is merciful and ready to help us when we pray to Him. I opened my Bible and read, first in Hebrew to the Israeli soldiers, and then in Arabic. The Arabs were surprised, but then they realized I believe in the Lord Jesus as my Savior. When they understood this, our conversation changed, and they and the Israeli soldiers wanted to know how I had come to believe in the Lord. I explained, I was not born a soldier. I was born as a human being, as all of us were, a creature of God. Today I am a soldier. Tomorrow I will be a private citizen again. But even as soldiers, we are not made of iron. We need his help. Without him, we can do nothing. This is why I lift up my eyes to the Lord in heaven. He has forgiven my sins, cleansed me through his blood, and wrote my name in the book of life. Because I have received him as my Savior, I can speak to you as friends, 
even though you hate me. The Lord has taught us to love our enemies and to pray for them. I serve in the army because I'm an Israeli citizen, and I serve the Lord because I belong to him. I can truly say they were sorry to see me leave. After this, we had to leave the restaurant. I can truly say they were sorry to see me leave. I am happy I have the opportunity to tell them what the Lord can do for us and how he can make Arabs and Jewish people friends. I'd like to thank Dr. Randall Price for being with us today. And don't forget, if you've never subscribed, you can receive Israel My Glory magazine, no cost, for a full year. Visit foiradio.org. That's foiradio.org. You can call our listener line at 888-343-6940. Again, that's 888-343-6940. The Friends of Israel Today is a production of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. We are a worldwide Christian ministry communicating biblical truth about Israel and the Messiah while fostering solidarity with the Jewish people.